Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Kidnappings, killings and the Kennedys in Tim Baker's conspiratorial debut novel, Fever City. Born into a showbiz miller in Sydney, Tim Baker left Australia to travel in his early 20s and lived in Rome and Madrid before moving to Paris, where he wrote about music and worked in film. He later ran consular operations in France and North Africa for the Australian Embassy, liaising with international authorities on cases involving murder, kidnap, terrorism and disappearances. His fiction includes the collection of short stories, Out from the Past, and his work includes writing the feature film Samsara. And today we're going to be talking about Tim's debut novel, which is Fever City. So, Tim, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you for having me. Tell us, in your own words, how you would describe Fever City. It's a, it's a novel that has three main mysteries at its heart. The first mystery concerns the disappearance of a child, the kidnapping of a child of the, the richest man in the United States. The second looks at the story of the assassination of JFK. And the third is a contemporary component of the book that covers a journalist who is doing, a, let's be frank about it, a hack story on the JFK killing. Mm-hmm. He goes to Dallas to interview the usual JFK conspiracy buffs, and crackpots, and he starts to suspect that his father may have been involved in the killing. And for me, I see it as a, a crime novel, of course, but I also see it as a story about families, about the mysteries of understanding the people that we love the most, because within the novel, there are four protagonists, and all four of them are wounded by a loss of a loved one. And they're trying to examine their relationship with the loved one and to see what was the truth behind what happened and how they can rid themselves of guilt that they feel. Because all of them, to a certain extent, feel responsibility towards what happened to the loved ones. And also, all of them feel a sort of wounded rejection from what has happened to the people that they've lost. I mean, at first glance, this seems like the subject area, not just JFK, but that whole sort of 50s, 60s, 70s America corrupt world, the crime world intersecting with the business world. It's quite a fertile field already for literature, and not just literature, but obviously there's books about conspiracy theories, for instance, it's a fertile ground for, and not just what we would consider to be, you know, big, thick airport novels, but some real literary heavyweights, Don Delilo and Norman Mailer, all the way down to Elroy and even Stephen King have had a go at that 
sort of area. So why did you think it was worth having another go at it? Well, to tell you the truth, when I first started it, I never thought about trespassing upon another writer's terrain. It never occurred to me. I came to this novel because I felt a calling to the story. I never set out to write a JFK conspiracy book as such. But what happened is, as I was researching other components of what became Beaver City, I gravitated more and more towards the elements that surrounded the assassination of Kennedy. And it just evolved like that. So I guess you could say it's an unintentional conspiracy novel. (laughs) Sounds like a conspiracy to me. Exactly, I was about to say that myself, yes. But I also see it as um, a reflection upon events that have happened over the, that began 50 years ago and continue to inflict their, their pain uh, upon us because my belief is that the forces that were against Kennedy, trying to overthrow him, maybe not killing him, but at least opposing some of his legislation, these forces rose to power after his death and they have imposed themselves on our political world today. And Mm -hmm. I suggest in the novel, for example, that the 2008 financial crisis could be traced back to the villain of one of the main uh, three narratives in the book, Old Man Bannister. Mm -hmm. He, for me, is like the godfather of the bankers that almost destroyed the world economy in 2008. One of those story strands that you mentioned at the beginning, the kidnapping, is his, I say, child who is being kidnapped... Um, that Nick, the private eye protagonist, is in, is brought in to investigate. So I wanted to talk about. You said you know before it became, before JFK became involved, you were exploring, you were researching, exploring other areas to write about. So I presume the kidnapping is part of that. Isn't exactly, it? that's right. Uh, I, I initially started a novel that was set in Manhattan in 1950. And the kidnap story was a, a vital part of the, of the novel, but it wasn't the main part. But as I continued to write, I was drawn more and more towards the moral issues that were raised in the kidnapping story. And so I abandoned what I had thought was the main story and focused more on the kidnapping. And I developed the kidnapping story to a certain extent where, after about two or three years, I had not a novel but a solid s- story. I felt there was something missing and I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I was doing research about uh, the life of Charlie Lucky Luciano, the, uh, the gangster from the 1920s and 1930s. And interestingly enough, when I was doing this research, I kept on getting echoes of Dallas. And that's really when I first began to think about Dallas, when I was looking at the possibility that organized crime was involved. And after, well, it's a strange story, but I had a dream, a vivid dream once. I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I rushed to my table over my computer, started typing. I've had this before, and sometimes I I keep a journal next to me, and in the middle of the night I write down my dreams. The next morning it's gibberish. But this was such a powerful feeling that it forced me to get out of my bed on a cold January morning, and I started typing, and uh, it was like it was being dictated to me, and I've never had this experience before. And I knew that this was something important, but I didn't know what it was. And I, didn't, I wasn't even really listening to what the voice was saying. I just wrote it all down. It lasted about four or five hours. Then I went out, had a long walk, reflecting upon what had just happened. I came back, and I prepared myself to read what it was. Mm-hmm. And I realized that what I had written that morning, there were three sections, almost like three chapters. The first section was the introduction, the existing uh, 
first chapter of FIFA City today, introduced an entirely new character called Hastings. And I even had his name, Hastings, from the dream. And it opens in a desert, and I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know where it was leading to. But I liked the tone, and I thought it felt propulsive, and I, I thought it had an urgency to it. I felt drawn to this voice that I had discovered. The second section, or the second chapter, was complete gobbledygook. It was nonsense. Mm-hmm. And it was exactly like a dream normally is. And even the names of the characters were absurd. And I, I just didn't understand what this was. I said, wait a minute, how come the first part reads really well? second part is rubbish. Then I read the third part, mm-hmm. and it was quite similar, not ex- as similar as the first chapter, as, as the third chapter in this book. And it introduces the son of Nick Alston. I didn't know at that stage that he was the son but I knew that somehow he was connected to the kidnapping. So afterwards I thought about this, and I thought, why was the second chapter rubbish and the other two chapters coherent? And I thought, maybe it's because it's my unconscious mind telling me that the second chapter is where the kidnapping should be. So I tried that. I inserted some work from the kidnapping in between these two pieces, and suddenly everything fell into place. And I suddenly understood the kidnapping wasn't enough on its own to stand alone. JFK for me was incredibly interesting but not enough to stand on its own. And I thought by meshing these two, suddenly I had a, a, a narrative. I found a kind of architecture to the novel that had been eluding me literally for years because I started the kidnapping story in about 1993 and 1994, put it down several times. So I was really pleased with this and then I continued. That was in 2011. I finished the novel in 2014. The other thing that came about was uh, before the dream, I won a prize and was invited to go to Los Angeles to, uh, it was the Producers Guild of America for a screenplay that I wrote. And I was bowled over by Los Angeles. I'd never been there before and I never expected to like it because I thought if I hate cars, I don't drive. I just thought it was a, a city without a center, without a soul. But in fact, I found it a very romantic city with a lot of nuance, a lot of atmosphere, a sense of danger, a sense of drama. I was also overwhelmed by the proximity of nature, the mountains, mm-hmm. the ocean. So it's a complete surprise to me. I loved it. And I thought, instead of setting the kidnapping story in 1950 New York, why not set it in Los Angeles in 1960? Why 1960? Because I think all of us respond to certain periods and certain uh, histories. And some people are Renaissance people and other people are... Victorian people, and I'm a, definitely a mid-20th century person. From 1944, to say, the, the liberation of Paris, which I've written about, through to the Zodiac killings in the early mm. 1970s and Watergate. And 1960 was smack bang in the middle of this period. And also, it's a very interesting time because you had Kennedy and Nixon, two mm. enormous political personalities. And the 60s, of course, was the beginning of a, an enormous upheaval, a social upheaval and a cultural upheaval, political and economic upheaval. So I took a punt and decided to do that. And um, it started to work in a way that it hadn't worked before. I mean, I think there's also something something great. I mean, there are obvious there are examples where it's happened in Chinatown or Elroy's own LA Confidential, but the idea of setting... What is ostensibly a film noir story, which we would imagine, you know, in black and white, in that in the glaring sunshine. It's all in this novel. It's always hot. It's always sunny. The characters are exposed almost under, you know, under that pitiless sunlight as well. Yes, it's very interesting you mentioned film noir, Neil, because uh, that's been a tremendous influence 
on me over, over the years. The great film noir films like uh, Out of the Past <laughs> and A Touch of Evil, you know, they carried such emotional force and honesty. And perhaps it was because compared to what Hollywood was producing through the studio system, they felt genuine. But I also thought that they touched upon a, a tragic essence in drama that hadn't really appeared that much in Hollywood at the time, or not since the early 1930s. Mm -hmm. So, yes, black and white, you're right. Sunlight and shade, they're themes throughout the novel. People have sort of said, well, you're stepping on the toes of uh, James Elroy or Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe's uh, territory. And also you mentioned Chinatown. It was a film that influenced me a lot, and, and also Point Blank. Mm -hmm. John Borman, uh, that was set in the 60s as well. Yes, all of these things were swirling around in my head, but they didn't really, they were never a reference for me when I was writing this book. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they were an unconscious reference. Perhaps I was seeing shadows on the, the movie screen of my mind and I was recalling characters from previous books, but I honestly didn't feel that. I, I felt that I was in my own terrain, and I, I think it's an interesting idea about do you have a right to speak about another city, a mm -hmm. city that you haven't lived in, or to speak about a country that you're not a citizen of. Story ownership is a very interesting question, a very interesting debate for me. If Fever City can contribute to that debate, I'm happy, but it wasn't anything active in my mind. I was just following a story that entranced me, and also I felt called to the story. I, I never, ever set out to write the JFK conspiracy thing, or even to write an L.A private eye-based novel. Mm -hmm. It just happened, and I was happy with answering this call. Sinclair, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about the novel structure. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but as we said, there are three, four protagonists, the fourth one we'll get onto in a little while, but there are three narrators of the story, um, or at least, you know, there are two first-person narrators, and, and Hastings is written from a, a sort of different angle. But that structure, so Lewis Olsten is the journalist who is in the present day. The other two are, the stories are sort of set in the main in 1960 and then 63, but they both sort of go either side of that as well, and so are both sort of a lot closer and sort of overlap as well. So I wanted to talk about the difficulties of really plotting that. To tell you the truth, I didn't plot the novel. What I did is I just wrote the three different voices, and I tended to try and alternate, but I didn't want a kind of novel that was static in that it's story one, story two, story three, sure. repeat. So I would say, for example, start with Nick Alston, who is um, a disgraced LAPD uh, detective who was thrown off the force for, uh, maybe we'll get into this later on, the reason why. He becomes a private eye. His story is set in 1960 and... I would just write Nick's story to a point where I didn't know where it was going. Then I would stop, and then I would maybe go to his son, Lewis, the contemporary element in Dallas in 2014. 
I would do the same thing, and then I would go back to Hastings. As the novel progressed, and um, it's about 400-odd pages now, but it was half as big again. As the novel progressed, I began to intuitively understand the connections of the narratives. It wasn't until the third or fourth draft of the novel that I sat down and I said, how can I make the narratives clearer for a reader? That's when I maybe started doing the plot. But it was only after I had written out the story and I had, I had an understanding of the landscape. So I guess you could say what it was is I walked around the terrain for a while and then I drew a map afterwards when I, I knew what it was. But uh, in, in terms of the, the three sections, initially I just had chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Then I realized, wait a minute, I, I, this is a big ask for a reader. So I thought it, it would be a good idea to signpost the chapters, which I do with the date yeah. and also with the place. So after the couple of chapters, the reader begins to realize if it's 1960 Los Angeles, we're probably dealing with Nick. And if it's 1963, Los Angeles, we're dealing with Hastings, the hitman. And 2014, we're definitely dealing with Alston's son, Lewis. But what I hoped was that the three narratives would slowly converge. That elements, mysteries in each person's narrative would be solved in the narratives of other people. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted was sort of like a dovetailing of the stories at the end. So... At the end, you understand the quest of the three people and you also understand how they interrelate to each other and how they're dependent upon each other. Now, again, at the centre of this novel is a conspiracy theory, these uber-conspiracy theory, (laughs) where really where the idea of modern conspiracy theories all began, the JFK assassination. Obviously, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say to say how that one ends. Obviously, <laughs> that's not. Although there was sometimes in the early on in the book where I wondered if we were going to go in a different direction. Yes, but as the conspiracy was building and we were learning more and more about it, and you were putting more and more layers on top to the extent that there is, you know, there is a scene the day before at a house outside of Dallas. Which, you know, must have a hundred people in it who are all somehow tangentially linked to this conspiracy. And as I was reading the book, I was sort of chucking along and thinking that, you know, you were sort of doing this as a comment on the sheer number of conspiracy theories that there are around around JFK. One of the interesting things about them I often think is, you know, they all contradict each other because, oh, it was it was the Cubans, oh it was the CIA, oh it was the Mafia. But then subsequently, after reading it, I've read another interview with you where, you've, where you, you basically said, I think I give as good a shot as you're going to get as to what actually happened in this book. And I didn't know how seriously to take that comment in that interview, to be honest, though. Well, when I said it, what I meant really was, you're right, that the farmhouse the day before the assassination, you have literally everyone. You have historical figures there, yes. and you have all the branches of the government and big business that have over the years been accused of conspiring to kill Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So if you like, it's like a a grand party where what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring in the notion of who could have killed him. When I was developing the theory, I was looking at motive because I thought that was a good way to start. And I was informed in this method by my time uh, at the consular section at the Australian Embassy in Paris 
where I, I came across for the first time the investigative judge, the, the French system where the judge is an active investigator, mm. and I found it very fascinating. So I thought, I'm going to approach the conspiracy as if I were a French investigating judge, because they go through all the evidence, and then they plot out a possible motive for a crime. And that's what I did. And the problem is, of course, that there are so many motives. There's the uh, big oil, and we know that Kennedy was about to end the enormous tax concessions that were being granted to big oil, so that was going to cost them a lot of money. There was talk that Kennedy was going to place the Fed under the control of the Department of the Treasury, and that influenced the banking sector mm-hmm. enormously. There's the military-industrial complex, which Eisenhower warned about in his farewell address. There's the mafia. We know that this historical documentation, the mafia and the CIA definitely colluded in an attempt to assassinate Fidel Castro, and a lot of people believed that plot boomeranged back Mm -hmm. on Kennedy. So I just thought, let's have a grand old party in a farmhouse in Texas and put all the cards on the table. But having done that, I then, in the resolution, and we maybe shouldn't discuss this, I do specifically point my finger at an organization that did exist, that I think had the motive, also had the mean to do it. So this is a kind of story that will go on and on. We'll never know the answer, or at least not for the foreseeable future. Before I started the book, I doubted very much that Oswald could have been the lone gunman. By the end of my research, I thought he could, because every possibility has to be examined with an open mind. It's quite possible that Oswald lucked out and took these three shots and killed the president, almost by chance. Anything is possible. But uh, for me, in terms of the the story and in terms of the journeys of the the protagonists, I selected one particular possibility that fitted neatly into my narrative. And I thought that gave a certain dramatic impetus and and also emphasised the tragedy that the, the protagonists, the four protagonists have lived through. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Tim Baker about his debut novel, Fever City. And Tim, I mentioned in the first part that there is a fourth protagonist in the novel as well. This is Betty Bannister, who I'll let you describe who she is. But she's she's a brilliant character because while she is obviously a classic film noir femme fatale figure, 
She's much more than that. She's a much more broadly written character, better written character. Also has similar sort of driving forces to the, you know, she's not, she is one of the four main protagonists as well, even though she's not one of the narrators. She's not just there for, you know, as a love interest or whatever for the, any of the other main characters. So let's talk about, let's talk about Betty. Okay, well, Neil, I'm really happy to hear you say that because I wanted so much to make Betty an equal mm-hmm. to the three men. At first, it seemed kind of difficult because it's a, uh, in many respects, it's a masculine kind of story. Yeah. You know, we're dealing with the film noir kind. We're dealing with the noir novel, the private eye novel, where you have these tough men, these hard men, making difficult decisions. But I really wanted to have a woman in there that I thought was real. You're right. At the beginning, she comes across as a typical femme fatale. But that's because we see her through the eyes of Nick when we first see her. So Nick, and perhaps I should just point out that Nick narrates in the first person, in the present tense, whereas Hastings is in the third person in the simple past. And I wanted to, to do that to give Nick a sense of immediacy because he's in control because he's the investigator. He's trying to sort things out. Whereas Hastings is the haunted man, he's the hit man, He's not introspective by nature. He's more in the distant. We observe him Mm -hmm. rather than get to know him. So through Nick's eyes, we see Betty Bannister as a a beautiful woman, an alluring woman, a mysterious woman. She's the fourth wife of old man Bannister, who is uh, in his late 70s now. And I won't go into more details, but she's involved in a scandal. Her marriage created a scandal when she married old man Bannister. So... I thought that by showing her in the first person with Nick Alston and then seeing her start to enter into the third-person narrative of Hastings, we were looking at her from a different perspective. And then, I don't know if you recall, but there's one chapter where suddenly we switch to her perspective. She's mm-hmm. inside a car driving to a hospital after a terrible accident. And for me, that's, that's sort of like the moment where she switches, mm-hmm. where suddenly she's no longer one of the other characters. She's a participant. She becomes a protagonist. And as we learn more about her, we see the contrast of her behavior with these three men. All four of them have had a trauma involving a close family member. With Nick, it's his brother. With Hastings, it's his wife. And with Alston, it's his father. Uh, Louis Alston, it's his father. With Betty, it's her sister. But we don't really know. We know much more about the other three. Betty and her sister, it remains elusive. There's something between them we don't know what. Uh, My hope was that people would read Betty and see that out of the four people, she's the only one who can take the pain from the past and try to turn it into something constructive for the future. Nick Alston is just torn by hatred and also self-disgust because he's a cop who can't even catch the killer of his own brother. So he's full of self-loathing and he's full of hatred of the world and he swears that he will find the killer of his brother. Uh, Hastings is a man who's consumed by not the anger of Nick Alston but by despair, by an existential despair because he lost his wife under shocking circumstances. And his response is basically to give up on life and to become a pawn for vicious and evil men. Uh, Louis Alston is wandering around, feeling the absence of his father and sensing that his father was hiding something from him and wondering what it is, believing it's connected to the kidnapping and then suddenly suspecting that it's connected to the JFK assassination. Betty is the only person 
who accepts the pain from her past and looks forward. And she's the only one of these four people who's actively trying to help other people. So why is she doing this? Is it because she's nobler? Is it because she is self-sacrificing? I leave it up to the reader, but personally speaking, I think it's not any of those reasons. I think it's just because she has a courage, the courage to overcome uh, traumas and events. Mm -hmm. It sort of brings me into one of the central themes of the novel, which is that all of us can identify our own private Dallas in our lives, because Dallas came to personify for America and for the world a moment of optimism that was suddenly denied, that was destroyed. And it represents for many people a turn for the worst, where things started going downhill, where people stopped believing in hope and change. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us, if we look back, we can recognize moments like that where things turned out badly for us or something happened that changed our lives, that altered the course that we imagined for our lives. And the big question is, how do we respond to moments like that? For the three men, they respond with anger, with regret, with hatred. For... Betty, she responds by reaching out and trying to help people and trying to influence her future and trying to overcome the events that have hammered her and to get through it. So I see her as someone who believes in the future where the, the other three are condemned, at least at the beginning, by their past. And I think also, I mean, you can widen that out. I mean, again, this is a it's sort of a classic thing of this sort of novel, this sort of setting, but that modern noir novel, that the idea of good and bad is not really, it's not that obvious. There's no Philip Marlowe character, even though we have a private detective. You know, this is much closer to, you know, Kiss Me Deadly than it is to the the big sleep in terms of the fact that everybody's dirty in this thing and that goes right down all of the characters even minor incidental characters in this book this world that they inhabit is a sort of post Dallas innocent world you know it's like everybody let's talk about the, you know that sort of idea that like, <laughs> everybody is either so the rich and the powerful you know everybody's chasing money and power so there are the rich and the powerful that are controlling things, but then there are all of these, you know, sort of low lives and gangsters and criminals who are sort of chasing a little bit of that money and power as well. That's right. <laughs> it's true that I, I, I didn't want to make a good versus bad, uh, a good guy versus bad guy, good cop, bad cop kind of novel, because that's not the way people are. We can be capable of, of wonderful kindness and horrible behaviour, just dependent upon certain moods we everyone is capable of good and bad and when you you place someone under the extreme stress that these characters are placed under you're not going to see the best of someone rising up or the worst of someone you're going to see both i think i think that people react as they muddle through situations as they try to collect information they react to the information they respond to their interaction with other people and if the person they're responding to is helpful, maybe that might bring out a better part of them. If the person that they're reacting to is obstructive, that could bring out a worse part to them. The other thing that underlines especially the characters of Nick, the private eye, and Hastings, the hitman, both of them had the experience of World War II. And that's a very transformative experience for a young man to go through war because it transforms your notions of good and bad itself, mm -hmm. because you're asked to commit crimes on behalf of your country, to free your people, to keep your people safe. You, you are asked to become a killer. Yeah. And so 
I think setting this book in 1960 and have, knowing that both of these men served in World War II, it's impossible to revert to this notion of absolute good and absolute evil. They were sullied by the experience in war. It matured them, but it also, to a certain extent, destroyed them. And perhaps what we can see in Fever City now is their attempts to rebuild themselves, mm -hmm. because it's taken 15 years from 1945 to 1960 for them to recover from the shock of what they were capable of doing and what their superiors were capable of asking them to do. And that concept of what superiors are capable of asking you to do applies to a certain extent to society as a whole. And if we look at the, the mafia character, the criminal characters, they're, of course, based upon uh, a military structure. They follow orders. They're just following orders. And they try and take a little bit on the side. They try and cheat each other as they go along. It's the same with the economic and financial people, the banking people. They work within a structure, but they will take every opportunity to exploit the weaknesses mm -hmm. of the structure, to take advantage of the structure. So if you like, I haven't thought about this before, but it's, it could be the American dream to its ultimate frenzied extent. This is where the American dream leads you. If you act on your own for yourself, you end up in a society where you have all these people exiled from each other. And do it to the other guy before he does it to you. Basically. Exactly, yes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Emma Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I wanted to talk a little bit about the 
as we said, there's a sort of fictional story in here of a kidnapping, but also it's set uh, among the time of a real historical event. So inevitably, from JFK way down to a certain point, there are real historical characters in the book, and then obviously your fictional characters as well. I want to talk a little bit about mixing those two things. Tell me about that. Yes. First of all, I th- when I realised that I was going to actually write historical characters, I decided that I would try to create an historical truth about them, meaning that I would try to ensure that the portrayal of their actions was linked to historical events. Of course, we will never know the motives of these historical people, but, for example, I, I thought I was astounded when I found out that Richard Nixon was in Dallas the morning of the assassination. And equally, I was astounded to find out that George Bush was in Dallas as well. And so this is historical fact. But it gave me tremendous scope to reflect upon the motives. Why were they there? Because if you include Kennedy and Johnson, you have four presidents there on the same day. It's quite extraordinary for a momentous event like that. So it's the same with Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, I... Because he was a a very odd man, a reclusive man, especially towards the end of his life, you can take a lot of liberty with him. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to suggest, first of all, that Howard Hughes was a bit of a shadow puppet, or a puppet master, because all the people um, throughout the novel, there, there are references to Hughes. He's, if you like, the antithesis or the rival of Old Man Bannister. They're two incredibly wealthy, phenomenally powerful people who are trying, just like the gangsters, get as much power and money for themselves as possible. So with Howard Hughes, I thought by keeping him in the shadows, on the sidelines, somehow it would be a more honest portrayal of him because that's the way he chose to live his life. I did have certain reservations about the portrayal of Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. And I think I think it brings up this idea of intrusion into a private life. I live in France, and this is a very big issue now, the right of politicians to their privacy. Personally speaking, I think that the private life of a politician is very often nothing more than a, a secret life, hiding things that the politicians don't want us to see. So I also feel that in the post-Snowden era, The whole concept of privacy has gone because none of us really have privacy. We don't know when any government agency is listening to us or looking at our emails or watching what we're doing on Facebook. And with social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, people are delving into their private lives and sharing it in a way that we've never seen before. So I did want to address the issue of private life by having the modern component and the old component and saying what we might have considered sacrosanct in 1960. And the press were very aware of the um, affairs that Kennedy was having, just like they were aware of the illness of Franklin Roosevelt. But they chose not to mention it. Today, that's finished. Mm-hmm. So I, I did feel anxiety and I, I did feel a certain degree of guilt about writing about the sexual escapades of Kennedy But at the same time, I thought I had to do it. I thought it was part of the background to the story, just like the economic background to the story with the influence of Big Oil or the um, F-111 program where 
the United States was co-opted by businessmen into buying a completely useless airplane for uh, billions and billions of dollars was part of the story. Mm -hmm. So in dealing with historical figures, even though I wouldn't say hurt me, but it gave me a lot of pause, I decided I had to do it. I had to examine the motives of Kennedy in the same way that I examined the motives of the despicable gangsters. The book definitely ends with some loose threads, some things not entirely entirely satisfactorily ended, so it does seem like we might be able to expect a sequel. Yes. What I wanted with the ending is, as I said before, I aimed to try and get a convergence of the four protagonists and the three storylines into one whole and to dovetail around the assassination of Kennedy. But then I wanted to have a falling away, and I deliberately wanted to leave the reader with the idea that not all of the mysteries have been solved. Because, to a certain extent, the reader can imagine what would come next. But also, I think, because in in life, that's the way it is. We move on, we age, we die, the mystery remains unsolved. But yes, there is a sequel. I'm working on the sequel now, and it continues with all of the four main protagonists and with a lot of the secondary characters as well, like Johnny Roselli. And it moves further into the 1960s and it looks at some very interesting stories. I'm realising that when you pick up one conspiracy, you find that a a couple of other conspiracies are somehow stuck to you like birds to wool. And um, so it does look at the the shooting of uh, Bobby Kennedy and also the Zodiac killings. I tried to um, signpost the Zodiac killings with a couple of references in the book. They become quite important in the sequel. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking about Fever City, which is the debut novel of Tim Baker. And Tim, we've spent a good while talking about the novel. I want to talk about, I guess, how you came up to write the novel. I read out the um, the blurb at the beginning, which sounds itself like the plot of a novel. <laughs> You've had such an interesting life. So let's talk about that for a moment. So first of all, you know, there's this sort of enigmatic line, you were born in Sydney into a showbiz milieu. What does that mean? Oh, well, what it means is that um, my father was, if you like, a little bit like Andy Hardy, if you remember those musicals, because when he was 16 years old, he founded um, a musical troupe, and one of the members of the troupe was my mother, and they started putting on musical shows, and then they started having success, and they moved from an amateur into a professional structure. And then the Korean War came along, and um, so my my parents, who were not married then, went off to Korea to entertain the troops. 
They spent a couple of years in Asia, in Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, a lot of time in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, putting on shows. My father uh, was a stand-up comic and uh, a compere. My mother was a singer. The troupe had five or six people, and they, uh, they did their bit. Then they came back to Australia. They were going to go to London to try their um, luck on the West End. But my mother fell pregnant with uh, my brother Stephen, and then they said, well, after... And then my mother fell pregnant again, and there were five of us, five boys. That sort of put the kabang on the trip to London. So my father started um, managing theatres, and uh, he had a stadium, and it was quite bizarre for me because I was seven or eight years old, and I would go to see what was on at his... Um, his venue every week, and one night it would be Thelonious Monk with an audience of maybe 24 people. And then um, two nights later it would be World Championship Wrestling or the Roller Derby and there'd be thousands of people. <laughs> so it was odd. And he also ran theatres, and uh, I, would, I started going to see stage plays at the same age, six or seven years old, and uh, most of them I didn't understand because there were things like the killing of Sister George and the cocktail party by mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot. How's a seven-year-old boy going to understand that? But then there were things I could understand, like um, The Music Man and Dracula, which mm -hmm. was wonderful because there was a coffin on the stage and a coffin outside, and uh, I never worked up the courage to look into until the last day, and I was disappointed to find that the man playing Dracula wasn't actually lying in there when he wasn't <laughs> on the stage. And then after that, he became uh, a, a theatrical agent. And if you've ever seen Broadway Danny Rose, mm -hmm. you'll see, you'll get a picture of some of his clients. That story was not too far off the track. And he then started working as a nightclub manager in a, a couple of nightclubs in Sydney. And this was during the R&R &R period when you had a lot of American servicemen who would go to Sydney for rest and recreation uh, during the height of the Vietnam War. Sydney was a pretty wild place because um, that's when heroin started coming into the city. Uh, organized crime started to get a lot more organized. Uh, slot machines started coming in. Americans, including associates of Johnny Roselli from Fever City, arrived. So it was, it was a little bit of a dicey period for him because he was aware that little by little, uh, organized crime figures were moving into all the nightclubs First of all, with uh, demanding protection money and then taking over everything. And there were a lot of um, terrible stories about nightclub managers who were beaten and one was put into a coma because they were refusing to pay protection money. So he decided to invite police, and that solved the problem because any cop in Sydney knew that if he went to one of my father's nightclubs, he could get a free drink, and that meant that no criminal ever showed their face because at that time there was something called the consorting law. Mm -hmm. And if you saw two known criminals together... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.